Do you have questions about life and faith and God that remain unanswered? Do you feel like the Christian cliches are shallow and don't really get to the truth? Is this whole Christian thing rather uncertain for you? And, and does that uncertainty exclude you from true spirituality? My name is Skip Collins, and for the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to explore concepts of life and faith and the Bible and Christianity. We'll challenge our traditional views and ideas, which at times will probably make us a little uncomfortable, but hopefully, We'll come out on the other side, more connected to our faith, to God, and to what we believe. So let's jump in to deeply spiritual, but rather uncertain. Hey everybody, welcome. Just a bit of housekeeping before we get into this week's subject. Today we're wrapping up this series on the themes of the Bible. And I'm calling today the end of season one. I found out that's something you can do in podcast world, so that's what I'm going to do. Then I'm going to take a short break and regroup for season two. It's easy to spend so much time working in something that you don't have enough time to work on it. And I've got some ideas that I'm really excited about, but I need a little time to make them a reality. So I'm going to take a month or so to work on it so that season two is better than ever. Don't delete me from your podcast library. I will be back, I promise. I grew up in a home that had a very strong sense of mission. Mission wasn't just talked about, it was lived. My father was a youth evangelist for many years, while my mom was stay-at-home mom. She held down the fort while my dad was on the road for much of the time, and in that role, she saw herself every bit as called as he was. I watched my parents sacrifice for the mission they deeply believed in and that they were incredibly dedicated to. One of my real early memories that is like burned into my brain dates back a really long time to when I was probably five years old. My father worked in an organization called Youth for Christ. He would travel with groups of teenage musicians. They were called teen teams, and they would sing and play, and then he would preach. I remember very well the first team that was put together. They would come to our house at times to rehearse, and they sang a song called, So Send I You. Now, you have to be really old to know that song. It's a bit of a depressing song, but it has really never left me. When I read the lyrics to this day, I can still hear that group singing it. The song is taken from a passage in the book of John where Jesus says to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Later, my father left youth evangelism and worked with an organization that made and distributed Christian evangelistic films around the world, and then after that, with an organization that sent Bibles to India. So the concept of mission was never foreign to me. So back in 1986, when I first sensed God's call to be a missionary, quote unquote, 
It seemed totally natural and normal to me. I didn't know exactly what it meant or where we'd end up, but I was really excited about the idea. My wife, Sheila, grew up in a United Methodist Church that also had a great sense of mission. She had been exposed to missionaries through their annual church camps and with missionaries that would stay in their home. In fact, there are a number of young people from that church that ended up going to the mission field. So when I took her to lunch one day and told her that I thought God was calling us overseas, her comment was, okay, when do we leave? Sheila and I have often spoken about how grateful we are for our heritage and how bizarre it was that we would sell pretty much everything we had, take our seven and five-year-old boys and head to a country we knew almost nothing about, and all that seemed quite normal for both of us. This year, Sheila and I celebrate our 30th year of living and serving in this amazing country of South Africa. And yes, we are, technically speaking, missionaries. Although I've never been super fond of that word, I did find out later, though, that it's very helpful in fundraising. I guess my point is that it's not surprising that I would see mission as one of the threads that runs through almost the entire Bible. In fact, I guess it's the lens with which I see much of life. But like most everything, my idea around mission has broadened considerably over the years. The definition of missionary in the first part of my life included two really important factors. First, the gospel had to be preached in a way that people could respond. And secondly, it had to be overseas. Maybe not everybody defined it like that, but I did. I heard people talking about being a missionary in their own town, and I thought, oh, that's nice, but it's really a cop-out. I know, that's a bit arrogant. I get it. But now I see mission as being part of the story of what God is doing and has always been doing in the world. It might include evangelism, but it also might include doing justice. It might include taking a meal to your next-door neighbor or walking with a friend through a really difficult time in their life. Mission is as complex as moving your family halfway across the world and as simple as recycling. It's about caring for people and about caring for the planet. Mission is about being part of the story of God, bringing hope and redemption and reconciliation and healing to our world. Mission is about being part of something that is bigger than we are. Mission is stepping into the story of God and making a difference. When you read the Bible, there is story after story after story of people that step into the story and make a difference. Some people that we make a big deal about and some that we don't, but all of them play a role in the story. All of them are a part of the mission. There are people that you heard of like Noah and Abraham and Joseph and Mary, the disciples, Paul, and on and on and on. And there are people that are less known, 
like Jonathan or Gideon or Rahab or Jethro or Onesimus or Rhoda, literally hundreds, probably thousands of people whose stories have been told and recorded for generation after generation, people who stepped up, people who stepped into the mission. So let me tell you one story from the scriptures that I really love. It's about a woman called Esther and her cousin Mordecai. There's a whole book in the Old Testament called Esther, and it's a fantastic story. But the book of Esther stands out in the Bible because God is not mentioned one time in the entire book. Back in 587 BC, Judah, the nation of Israel, was attacked by Nebuchadnezzar. The walls of Jerusalem were destroyed, the temple was ransacked, and the people were taken into captivity in Babylon. The prophet Jeremiah had predicted this exact thing, but he also told the people that while they were in captivity, they should be good citizens of Babylon. He said they should work for the good of Babylon, make it a better place. And so that's exactly what they did. They worked hard, they had children, and in some ways they almost flourished. So much so that when the exile ended some 70 years later, the Jews started returning back to Jerusalem, but some of them stayed behind. This was now their home. Many of them were born there. Jerusalem was a thing of the past. It was history, and some wanted to move forward rather than to go back. It seems that Mordecai and Esther were among those that stayed. The short story is that Mordecai is Esther's older cousin. Her parents had died when she was young, and he actually raised her. King Xerxes was looking for a new wife and a queen. He had discarded the first one because she refused to obey him. It's really a pretty crazy story. The king and his friends were all drunk one night, and they called for the king's beautiful queen to come and entertain them. But she refused. So all the men got together later to decide what to do with a woman that refuses a direct order from her husband. So listen how it's recorded in the Bible. One of the king's advisors answered the king and his nobles. Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen did and start treating their husbands in the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. Man, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. When I read that, it's so scary because that's the argument that I still hear sometimes against women. It's like they're a danger and we've got to keep them in their place. But anyway, let's save that rabbit hole for another time. The story is that the king needs a new queen. And so he starts auditioning the most beautiful women in the kingdom in his bedroom. 
Apparently, Esther is drop-dead gorgeous, and so when she is auditioned, he is crazy about her, and she is made queen, although he doesn't actually know that she's Jewish. Now, in the meantime, Mordecai had discovered a plot to assassinate the king. So he tells Esther, who then goes to the king, and the plot is foiled. So Mordecai and Esther are certainly in the good graces of King Xerxes. Enter the villain of the story, Haman. Haman sucks up to the king and is made too icy. He demands that when he walks around the city, everyone bow down to him, but Mordecai refuses. This makes Haman absolutely furious. And so in his plot for revenge, he gets the king to sign an order that every Jew in the land must be killed. And the date is set for March 7th, of next year. So if you kill a Jew on March the 7th, you get to keep everything that that person owns, but only on March the 7th next year. So Mordecai finds out about this, and he tells Esther that she must talk to the king and stop it. So here's how the Bible records this conversation. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. To make a long story short, Esther goes to the king, and the people are saved. But this line has always intrigued me. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this? As I ponder this statement and think about my own life, I always hope that I'm here for more than one thing, you know, one moment in time. I hope I'm making a difference every day. But at the same time, I want to live every day with the anticipation that today I might do something really significant. Who knows if you're not here for such a time as this. It might not be as big as saving a nation from extinction, but something significant that really makes a difference. I'm a big fan of musicals. Maybe it stems from the fact that the first movie I saw was The Sound of Music when I was a kid. But one of my favorite musicals, probably just behind Jesus Christ Superstar, is called Rent. It was a massive hit on Broadway in the late 1990s and then made into a movie in 2005. The theme song of the musical is called Seasons of Love. The lyrics go like this, 525,600 minutes. How do you measure, measure a year? In daylights, in sunsets, in midnights, in cups of coffee, 
in inches, in miles, in laughter and strife, 's a story that shows up in Matthew, Mark and Luke. Some religious leaders had come to Jesus and they asked him what the most important law is. Now understand there weren't just 10. there were like more than 600. So Jesus tells them first exactly what they want to hear. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. But then he does something that they don't expect. He quotes from the book of Leviticus. And he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, these two laws are equal. And I believe he is saying that these two laws are actually the same. To love people is to love God. To love God is to love people. Later on, Jesus is with his disciples. When they entered the room, he kneeled down and he washed all of their feet. And he tells them, as I have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. Then they share the Passover meal together, which we now call the Last Supper. Then there's this thing with Judas, and he runs out of the room. And then after all that, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, now I'm giving you a new commandment. No, wait a minute, that's crazy. That's radical. The commandments were already written. You can't give a new commandment. But Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Later that evening, he was arrested and put on trial. And the next day, he suffered the most excruciating death known to man. As he's hanging on the cross, he shows them one more time what love looks like. He looks at the Roman guards who have tortured him and crucified him. He looks out to the Jewish leaders who trumped up charges against him. He looks into the future and he sees you and he sees me and he says, Father, forgive them. That, my friend, is what love looks like. Jesus said, love each other as I have loved you. That is the new commandment. Three days later, the women went to the tomb. It was early on Sunday morning, and the body of Jesus was gone. 
Jesus appears to them and he tells them, go tell the men. And of course, the men didn't believe them because nobody believed what a woman said. But just a little while later, Jesus appears to the disciples and he makes this statement, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Or if I can say it another way, as I have come in love, so I am sending you to love. If John 3.16 is true, for God so loved the world that he gave, then our mission, our call is to love. How do you measure a year? How do you measure a life? How do you measure a mission? Measure in love. That is the mission. Somehow, I think that some people think that the mission is to be against everything. But the mission is to love. Now, that's not to say we don't stand against injustice or racism or prejudice because we must, but we must do so in love. I mean, what part of a sign that says all abortionists must die is loving like Jesus loves? Or what part of a sign that says God hates fags is loving like Jesus loved? My friends, we are never going to change the world like that. We weren't called to change the world like that. The mission of God is to love. Full stop, end of story, drop the mic. What I believe is that we are all called to this mission. The mission isn't to make converts. The mission isn't to try to convince people to believe like we believe. The mission isn't to get people to change their behavior. The mission is to love like Jesus loved. So one more part of the Jesus story. 40 days after the resurrection, he stands on a hillside with about 120 followers, and he makes this statement, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Go make disciples. So what is a disciple? A disciple is one who follows and imitates. And what are we following and imitating? Jesus. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And what is the one command of Jesus at the end of the day? Love each other as I have loved you. That is the mission. It's that simple and it's that difficult to love. To love those that don't act like us or believe like us or behave like us. Just to love. Andy Stanley, who is a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia, has a phrase that I just love. What does love require of me? See, the mission is to step into the story and then ask the question, what does love require of me? Who knows? If you are not exactly where you are, for such a time as this. 
Let me wrap all of this up with my favorite benediction of all time. It's a Franciscan prayer, a Franciscan blessing, and I pray it for each one of you today. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice and oppression and exploitation of people so that you will work for justice and freedom and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, hunger, and war so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done to bring justice and kindness to all our children and to the poor. Amen. So my friends, that takes us to the end of season one. Thank you so much for hanging in with me for these 14 episodes. We will be back soon. I'm really excited about it. Keep an eye out. We'll be back. Until then, shalom. <laughs>